he lives a little way out of London, in the country. And each day he takes the train to the city where he works as head of research for an investment company. He's struck a balance between the rural and the urban, and this is echoed in his work where he combines his passion for sustainability with making investments that earn a decent return. My guest today is Seb Below. He works for Web Asset Management. And while the firm may look like any other fund manager, analyzing global markets and building portfolios of listed companies, Web's different because they're also impact investors. And that's what the Good Future podcast is all about. My name is John Treadgold and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. Now stick with me, I can hear the cries of heresy from the dyed-in-the-wool impact investors, those that invest in private markets where impact is deep and they own a big and influential chunk of equity. There's no doubt that this is the solid foundation upon which the impact movement has sprouted a rich forest of super progressive companies. But as we so often grapple with trying to define this concept of impact investing, it's clear that public markets can't be left out of the equation. They're simply too big. So, rather than draw lines in the sand, I say, let's go surfing. There's all sorts of different waves and they're going to require a whole bunch of different boards. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to speak in depth with Seb. He's thought deeply about these issues. And while he knows all too well the limits of influence one investor can have on companies that are traded on the stock market, the web approach is unique and it's pretty compelling. And as usual, I lead us off into the weeds, digging into the philosophy of finance and the changing economic landscape that's being driven by the demands of sustainability and the long-term benefits of investing in impact. All right, let's dive in. Don't forget to check out the website for all the show notes and book recommendations. That's at johntreadgold.com. And please keep on sending through your comments and the reviews on iTunes. That's enough from me. Here we go. Before digging into the, the nuance of impact investing, I'm keen to get a feel for how you see the divide between Australia and the UK. Brexit is obviously providing a huge headache for you guys, but is the, the UK's link to Australia as strong as ever? I think so. I'm, I'm not a sort of, uh, I wouldn't tell an expert on international relations, but um, it certainly feels that way. I think, um, like you say, I mean, Brexit is overwhelming. It's, uh, I must say, one of the, the many things I enjoyed about my time in, in Australia was uh, getting away from the wall-to-wall kind of Brexit coverage. But we are obviously in a much more uncertain world and having uh, strong relationships with broadly like-minded countries like the UK and Australia with essentially liberal democracies is increasingly important. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with Brexit, but maybe one of the silver linings of that will be a stronger relationship between Britain and some of these other countries around the world, like Australia. Yeah, no, I think it's as strong as ever, but Brexit really is dominating in the UK at the moment and and probably will do for another couple of years, I would say. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, I mean, 
switching into your, your area of expertise, sustainability, how, how do you see, I mean, I think the UK really is a global leader in, in sustainable investing and quite a few steps ahead of Australia. How do you feel they compare on that side of things? To be honest, I think there is always a tendency to look at other countries and sort of admire where they are. And when you're in them, it doesn't always feel quite as rosy as perhaps the presentation from outside the country. But I mean, the UK has been a leader, certainly on broader sustainability and, and SRI, ethical investing. And, um, you know, there was a time when it was very much all about the US. And then I think Europe and the UK have kind of forged ahead in evolving sustainability into something which is a bit more impactful today. I think the EU, what they're doing with their EU finance package, sustainable finance package is very interesting, clearly trying to to carve out leadership for themselves. But the UK, you know, there is definitely now not wanting to constantly harp on about Brexit, but one of the dimensions of that is that there's a an increasingly kind of competitive dynamic between the UK and the EU. And we're seeing the UK launch a whole range of initiatives through the British Standards Institute, the BSI, and the Investor Association here in the UK, uh, seeking to define and standardize what sustainable investing means. There is a lot of activity at the moment. But then, I mean, I, I do look at Australia, and I think there's lots of interesting things happening there as well with your the banking, the Royal Commission, you know, and the focus that that's had on you know, remuneration, which is obviously just part of the agenda. But you have very active institutional investors in the supers, and that's a, that's a model that we're kind of emulating over here in the UK. I think maybe the biggest difference, to be honest, is probably around policy engagement and not just in the finance sector, but across the whole piece industrially. In the UK, we do have, we're lucky to have within the current government, even with Greg Clark at Bayes Business Energy and Industrial Strategy, someone who does really believe in the transition to a zero carbon economy. And he's been very supportive in terms of putting in place structures to support that transition. And I do look at Australia sometimes, and I'm sort of perplexed, really. I genuinely just can't understand why your kind of the policy community seems to be so, <laughs> just so kind of, I don't know, incoherent, really, around some of these issues. Yeah, you don't um, need to be polite, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just perplexing, really. And, you know, particularly because, you know, you're broadly it's sort of in an urban liberal kind of society with an extraordinary resource you know around wind and solar and in an amazing natural environment you know anyway so it's, so it's kind of perplexing that the policy community in, in Australia hasn't been more proactive on this and I think that's probably the biggest differentiator between the UK and EU and Australia. Yeah, look, I, yeah, I definitely agree. You know, the, the regulatory, the, the policy side of things is pretty poor. I mean, I think we do have a lot of resources, but a lot of those are fossil fuels. So, you know, that big infrastructure has definitely been a cost. And I think they're trying to, trying to squeeze a few more years out of that, you know, in terms of then the private sector. Renewables really are pushing as hard as they can. The investment side is starting to realise that there are huge risks on the fossil fuel side and that renewables is a good bet. I guess then looking... At your perspective, your work is focused on research. Have you also always been interested in the, the intersection of finance and sustainability? I mean, I've, I've worked um, for you know, over 20 years now in, in the sustainability world, initially for a company called Sustainability, spent 10 years working there in the UK and also in the US, which was much more focused on corporates and helping the corporate world understand and engage strategically with the sustainability agenda and then sort of latterly the second part of my career 
the last 10 years has been focused more on finance, working with Henderson and then now at Webb. For a long time, actually, I said when I worked at Henderson that, you know, this wasn't my spiritual home, big asset manager like that, which really not just speaking about Henderson and obviously things may have changed there, but big asset managers really struggle to really embrace the sustainability agenda. So that was never going to be a long-term home for me, whereas obviously at Webb, it's a single business, independent, this is all we do, that does feel much more comfortable. Finance does have an extraordinary has extraordinary leverage over the corporate world and we're very privileged to to have the access that we do to the companies that we invest in and a responsibility to use that that leverage intelligently and what i think is really exciting though is is around the kind of business case and the sustainability agenda for me this isn't principally well i you know personally i'm driven by values the most powerful connections that we can make in our professional capacity is where we're explaining and exploiting the links between the business case and sustainability where it just makes business sense commercial sense to do the right thing from a from a sustainability point of view and there's there's huge opportunity there frankly that is the most exciting when you get both of those things in alignment that's what really makes this an exciting place to work okay and so those two things being your values on one side and then the business case on the other or not so much the values. I mean, yes, the values, but just the, the sustainability agenda, which I'm kind of slightly separating from a values perspective, you know, the, the requirement to deal with climate change, you could say is fundamentally a moral thing, but it's also become a commercial opportunity. That's what's exciting, really, when you have that overlap. And I guess that shift from it being a values issue, an ethical issue, to being a survival of the, of the species kind of issue. Do you yeah. think that's been the tipping point of the last sort of, probably not even the last decade, the last few years. Your language there around survival of the species, you know, people talking about this is a climate crisis now, this isn't about climate change. I mean, I think that's even more recent, really, and it is still to come. We have an independent advisory committee that met yesterday, and, and that's very much the language that they're using now. This At some point, this is really going to get brutal, and we need to prepare ourselves for that. I mean, I don't know if you've been reading about, uh, you know, this is still weather and not necessarily climate and one has to be careful about drawing those links but just extraordinary weather we're having in the uk at the moment and, and you and you just experienced similar sorts of things in australia and you know i think people are realizing actually this is really serious we will increasingly see policymakers scared about the reaction that the public is going to have or is beginning to have on these issues I mean, from an investment point of view, that's a sort of backdrop. But, you know, we would always hope, given our portfolio and the way that we invest, to be on the right side of those conversations, that any accelerated policy response that we see will support the companies that we invest in because they are the ones providing the solutions. That's right. I mean, it doesn't really matter where your values or your ethics are in purely financial terms. It's a really compelling case there. And, and I mean, that brings us to, to web and your focus on impact investing, which is what we're all about here. Now, web asset management, you can give me a bit of a rundown, but you build investment portfolios focused on, on positive impact. You do it with big publicly listed companies that are traded on the share market. Most impact investors use the private equity model of buying shares in smaller private companies, but you're trying to get hold of the scale and these, these big companies. Can you sort of explain your strategy there? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously there is a somewhat academic, although, you know, I think it's, it's more than just academic, I don't mean that pejoratively, argument about what is impact and whether it's possible in public markets. 
and you know people have suggested well maybe a better way of talking about it is impact aligned rather than necessarily impact because generally we're buying shares on secondary markets so we're not introducing new capital not investing new capital we're just buying shares from existing shareholders you know I, I think there's no question that the intensity is less of what we do we're not owning large stakes in small very impactful companies we're owning very small stakes in very large companies that that have positive impact but you know they're not necessarily replanting mangrove forests or building schools in vulnerable communities they're doing commercially attractive selling technologies in, into the market but nonetheless with a positive impact because the products that they're selling support healthcare or you know broadly make the world safer and cleaner as a consequence so i think the intensity is less but if you you know if you genuinely want to have impact on the scale that we need to have impact you can't just do it through private markets you're just never going to have the impact on the scale that you need uh, so to kind of draw up a definition that limits it to the private markets is it's ultimately self-defeating because you're never going to have the impact on the scale that you need you know you could argue it's a bit elitist as well because not everyone has the money to invest in private markets most people rely on the public markets for their pensions broadly there's a sort of democratization principle here as well what we're trying to do is make a positive impact investing accessible to you know mrs miggins with her 50 pounds a month pension savings or whatever which isn't really going to be possible through the private market so acknowledge that the intensity is clearly less we're still investing in companies or aligned with companies that are having positive impact and we're able to open up the market for a much larger set of investors i think the other point just finally to make on this is people are right to hold to account their investment managers when they own companies like Glencore or ExxonMobil and say, look, you have a responsibility for the impacts associated with these businesses producing fossil fuels on I mean, and the impact on the climate. And I think that's absolutely right. And I think most people would feel that way. And then surely the corollary is true as well, that if you own businesses that are selling wind turbines or solar panels or water treatment systems or providing educational services, you also own some of that positive impact as well so i feel very strongly about this and um, recognize that it's a complex debate but ultimately i think we have to embrace positive impact whatever it is in whatever asset class and that's really at the heart of, of a lot of the discussions i've had on this podcast and and i think yeah i mean if we get stuck in the terminology of what is impact and and specifying it just in one small group then I think we really do miss out. And, and I think the elitist element and democratizing impact is something we hear talked about. But at the same time, people say, oh, no, but you can't do it in the public market. So there needs to be flexibility there. And of course, not going as far as greenwashing and, and, and letting companies mm. really deserve it, claim that mantle. And so just you know, winding back a little bit, how do you choose the companies that, that do get into your fund? You know, you talked a bit about it's actually the products that the companies themselves are selling. I mean, that sounds like it's more than just a, an ESG filter. Uh, can you tell us yeah. a bit more about that? Our focus is very much initially, at least, on what the products and services are and are they aligned? Are they providing a solution to a sustainability challenge? So we have nine themes that we've had for the last 14 years. So they predate the Sustainable Development Goals, but they broadly map onto seven of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So it's businesses, obviously, in cleaner energy, selling wind turbines and solar panels and 
geothermal and, and all that good stuff. We have a resource efficiency theme, so businesses that are selling equipment for manufacturing that makes manufacturing more efficient, both in terms of energy and other types of resources. We own businesses that sell insulation for buildings, LED lighting systems, helping buildings reduce their energy use and become more efficient. Water treatment, you know, the whole area of sustainable transport, so businesses that are involved in the electric vehicle supply chain, making sensors and electronics that go into electrified powertrains, reducing emissions from transport. And then on the social side as well, businesses involved in healthcare technology, safety as well as a theme. So we invest in companies that make equipment for firefighters, for example, or provide services testing products to make sure that products meet standards that are required in terms of safety and toxicity and so on. It's very much about the products that companies are selling and in doing that you are like we talked earlier you're aligning the business motivation the commercial motivation with sustainability every time these companies sell another product the world gets a little bit cleaner a little bit safer a little bit healthier so every time there's a new regulation that comes through from government requiring car companies to improve the efficiency of their vehicles our companies benefit because they're able to sell more of their equipment and that's for us the most important thing the esg stuff which is more about how a company operates rather than necessarily what it does is also important but we see that very much as a part of a sort of quality assessment having established your universe of companies that you want to invest in which are the ones that are linked with our themes and that's defined by the products and services that they sell when you've done that okay which ones do you choose that's a question around well which is the highest quality one and one of the ways that we find that quality is by looking at ESG. How are they running their operations? What's their health and safety track record like? Are they well governed? All that kind of stuff. So that's a sort of slightly second order question, still important, but for us comes after defining the, the universe around this products and services that companies sell. And then in terms of those individual companies, are there any big names that people might recognize? I mean, would Tesla be in there, something like that? Tesla would be in our universe. We don't invest in Tesla for a number of reasons. We're not happy with the governance of it. Uh, we're seeing you know, yet again Elon Musk tweeting in a way that he's been told he shouldn't. So there's you know, obviously issues around that, around the governance of Tesla. There's also the price as well. Valuation obviously comes into this as well. You can find just the most wonderful company in terms of the products and services that it's, that they sell, very impactful. Uh, wonderful governance in ESG, but if it's trading at a very high multiple, then for us as investors, the, the upside is probably a bit limited. And so while we will continue to watch that company, it's not one that we'll probably invest in until it looks a bit cheaper. So valuation is important too. But so yeah, Tesla, I'm trying to think of other, a lot of these companies tend to be business to business companies. So they're selling technologies to other businesses. The CSL is one that you may know in Australia, yeah, obviously a company, yeah. big company there, you know, in the health theme, doing a whole range of, uh, of things around blood plasma and so on. Uh, there's a company that we own called Lensing and they, they make um, a variety of clothing fibers out of wood. Cotton is a very thirsty crop and it uses a lot of pesticides. And if you can avoid using cotton in clothing, then generally that's a good thing. And Lensing makes something called Tencel, which, you know, it's not a brand, a well-known brand name, but if you go into H&M or Zara or somewhere, 
you'll find Tencel in a lot of the clothes that they sell because you know these guys are also trying to reduce their environmental footprint and they see Tencel and lensing uh, using the Tencel products as one way they can do that. It's, so it tends to be more companies that are slightly hidden from, you know, they're not the big brands that you, that you see typically. Yeah, and does that mean, I mean, in your analysis, you must be very focused on regulation. Do you, do you think you sort of um, may have a bigger focus there than other, other fund managers? Yes, I think we probably do. Within our investment process, we explicitly look at, is there a regulatory driver for the product or service that the company is selling? Policy can be a, a bit of a poison chalice, though, and one has to be very careful about what kind of policy you're exposed to. The classic example of this, of course, is around renewables and the subsidies that have been provided to the renewables industry, and, and those have been progressively cut. And that has caused a lot of volatility, and particularly in the solar, but also in the wind uh, energy industries. You know, where there is a cost to government, where they're having to subsidize an industry, you're very vulnerable to that because governments don't like spending money and they'll cut that subsidy whenever they possibly can. But there are other types of regulation around increasing quality standards, for example, increasing safety standards, whether that's around you know, road transport or in buildings, the energy efficiency standards around your air conditioning system or your coffee maker, you know, all those kinds of things where there's no actual government's not being asked to subsidize anything. Those are much more sustainable, much more robust regulatory frameworks that rarely get rolled back. And that's an area that we, we invest in a lot and understand a lot about that landscape. And that's been, a, for the, you know, decades, that's been a very important driver of increasing efficiency in buildings or in products or, you know, and better safety. It's really been very important. So, yeah, we look at a lot of that. You did mention the challenges of having an influence on these big publicly listed companies, you know, that it's a secondary market. What influence can you have? You know, what is the key lever that you use? Is it, is it what's sort of called engagement where you go to annual meetings and, and put your hand up and, and put these, uh, you know, issues to the board? What are the key levers you can put? First of all, just to say again, we because of the way we're investing, the companies that we invest in tend to be very aligned with the way that we think. They tend not to be companies with a big negative environmental or indeed social footprint. You know, they're not the clothes makers that they're using or have used, you know, child labor to produce their garments. They're not the big extractive industries that have an enormous environmental impact. We just don't invest in those sectors, so we don't have exposure to those kinds of companies. In terms of our leverage, I think, firstly, it's about how we choose to invest and the companies that we're investing in. And then there's definitely the, the engagement role that we have to play as well. And we are very active owners of the companies that we invest in. We have a very long holding period, so we tend to invest in a company and then hold that company for seven years, which is an awfully lot longer than most investors have. It's more like a year typically or less. So we get to know these companies very well and they get to know us very well as well. We, we, we're constantly writing to them to tell them what we think about various issues. And although we're still very small on their investor register, we are among the most vocal. And so I was meeting with actually the, the company I just mentioned, Smurfit Kappa, which is a, an Irish company, 
the CEO came over for a breakfast meeting. I hadn't met him before to introduce myself. And he said, oh, yes, I know, Webb. We get letters from you, <laughs> you know, every year about one thing or another. You can have an influence there. I think it's, it does depend on how you choose to do it. Our focus still is very much on the long-term health of the business. That's how we frame our engagements. We don't frame them as, as ethical issues. With Smurf at Capital, we've done some work with them around their carbon footprint uh, because they do use a lot of energy in their facilities. They're one of the few companies that does have a, a, a significant environmental impact. But the way that we frame that isn't as, a, as an ethical issue, but about building a robust franchise for the future, you know, where these companies are going to be under a lot of pressure to improve or to reduce the carbon intensity of what they do. And it's our view that by investing today and building that robust framework today, reducing emissions today, that they will be better placed to compete tomorrow. And I think if you frame it that way, then you're much more likely to be listened to uh, than if you come across as, as just trying to sort of bang the, the, an ethical drum, which may or may not be, in their view, in the long-term interests of their business. Yeah, so you're much more of a cheer squad for the companies rather than sort of trying to berate them for bad behaviour, which... Uh, I guess, yeah, going to be positive for business. But then I guess I'm trying to think of other ways that, that you know, your influence, your choice to, to put your money into that company. Is that kind of a signal then to other investors as well? They might say, oh, well, Web, you know, they've got a certain filter, they've got a certain view. Does that then help push that, that share price up more than just your own um, allocation of capital? Well, I don't know. I, I would hope that's more and more the case as we get bigger than we have you know, a bigger profile and people may be interested to see what we own. Um, we're very public about it. We publish our holdings on our website so you can just go and download and see exactly what, what we own and why as well. We, we publish the reason why. So I would hope that that's part of it. You know, I think there's a, there is an ecosystem here around businesses with positive impact seeking to have investors who are also motivated by that and who are long term as well i mean that's a very i think a very healthy and very powerful relationship where you have investors who are supportive of that longer term mandate around sustainability that is enabling for the companies so um and we see businesses seek to attract that kind of investor um, and so having us on board is a positive part of that narrative we're not just cheerleaders for the companies we invest in though we do None of them are perfect, and whether it's not having enough gender diversity on their board or paying their CEO too much or not properly addressing a supply chain risk, you know, there's lots of issues that we engage with companies on and encourage them to take a more progressive position on. So it's not just us cheerleading from the back. It's, it's also having a go at them and saying, we think you can do better here, you should do better. Okay, and then, and then unique to web is your impact measurement system. And uh, mm -hmm. Of course, it wouldn't be a conversation of impact investing without talking about impact metrics, uh, which is obviously going to be really challenging in, in the public market. So, so how do you manage that? Or maybe it's easier because, you know, they are public and they have lots of, uh, lots of transparency rules and regulations and that sort of thing. There are no rules that require them to report, though, on, on their positive impact yet, at least. It's suspected it's a bit more difficult. I mean, we aren't in a position to say to companies, you must report this data for us, which is, at least as I understand it, is what can happen in the private equity world. Uh, you know, if you own 20% of a company, then you're in a position to, to dictate a little bit more what you think they should be reporting. So we have to work in other ways. Often, of course, companies will want to report this data anyway because it's for them it's positive data. Uh, so, you know, companies like Kingspan, 
which is actually another Irish company. I think they're the only two Irish companies that we own. Kingspan are an insulation business and they sell building insulation and they publish themselves a figure of how much energy they believe their insulation products have saved uh, every year. Of our portfolio, I think it's just under 40% of the companies that we invest in publish a number that we can then use in our impact calculations. There are other companies that will talk about how many in the education theme, we own a business in the US that runs a university, physical university and an online. They talk about the numbers of students they have in a year. So we can use that figure. It's not particularly sophisticated, but it's a, it is a data point that we can into our methodology. So some of it's publicly available and we can just access by downloading the information from the company's website. Sometimes we can estimate as well. Uh, which is a little bit more tenuous. But if you've got a peer company that is reporting, then perhaps you can use that data as a proxy for the for your company that they may not be reporting. Last year, when we did this calculation, there's still 40% of companies that don't report and that we weren't comfortable estimating their impact either. So in our portfolio, we're only actually able to get hold of data on 60% of the companies that we invest in. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think to me, that's really a trend going forward that has a huge amount of potential. This idea of all companies reporting their impact rather than it being this small group of impact investors that mm-hmm. all companies, uh, you know, as you said, there are no regulations about them reporting impact at the moment. Now, does that then form problems in terms of um, being able to sort of trust the companies and trust their numbers? But then going forward, have you sort of given any thought? Have you mapped out, you know, a world where all companies have, regulatory requirements to report impact and how that might work? I mean, I think we'll move down that road. I don't know whether it'll be regulatory. I guess probably it will be eventually. But, you know, we're seeing in the EU their sustainable taxonomy where they're developing this uh, framework for determining what should be considered to be sustainable. Exactly how they're going to do that isn't totally clear to me. But at some point, there will be a kind of framework that a company can look at and say, well, you know, looking at this framework, we would say that 60% of our business is in areas that uh, fit with the sustainable um, taxonomy that they produce. So you'll get a percentage of their business, but that still doesn't tell you what the actual impact is of their products. For a company, that's still a little bit further away. And sometimes it's, it's kind of conceptually quite difficult to know what that impact measure should be. Uh, so for example, you know, we invest in companies that make equipment that's used to test air quality and water quality around the world. Clearly, they're involved in the value chain of environmental protection because their equipment is used to make sure that water quality is up to a certain standard. But I don't know what the metric should be for them. You know, is it the numbers of machines that they sell? I don't know what the metric should be. Similarly, with this company that makes firefighting equipment, they make the self-contained breathing apparatus that firefighters use and the protective clothing that they wear and other things uh, clearly very much about safety and the safety of people but i don't know what the metric should be for them is it the numbers of firefighters that they equip or is it the number of people that have been saved from fires as a consequence of the firefighters operation and, you know do you see what i mean it's a, it's a methodologically quite conceptually it's quite difficult to know what that metric should be it then fragments even further, doesn't it? And it's the problem we have with, with the impact of investors because it's the investor then saying, you know, it was their influence on the company's influence, if that makes sense. So your, you know, your question, we've gone... Well, we would just say it's our, you know, we own 10% of the company. So if they report 
100 lives saved because of our equipment, we would say, well, we own 10% of your company, so we can attribute 10 lives to the fund in a very kind of, you know, slightly black and white kind of way. Yeah, I mean, and obviously you know, there's arguments about if that's the right way of doing it. But for me, the more interesting question is, well, how do you actually measure that impact? But I don't think it should be a reason not to invest in that company just because we can't actually arrive at a number. For me, I think not investing in this company, which is called MSA Safety, because there isn't a number that we can find would be the wrong thing to do because that, I think it's quite clear that that company has a positive impact. Yeah, so you have, a, have an, an investment thesis that goes beyond just having that metric and, and it hitting a set oh, yeah. threshold. Yeah, very much so, yeah, yeah. Coming back to, yeah, this element of it being the private sector taking the mantle and you guys are out there, you know, finding the companies that are worth supporting. We sort of can get down about all the, the big companies that we need to shake a stick at them to try and get them to behave. But you guys mm. have gone the other direction, sort of looking to the future and I guess leading the, the good operators with a, with a carrot and, and helping them do better. So I think that's really optimistic. And, and in some ways, looking at your portfolio list, your, your roster of companies, you know, can be really refreshing in seeing all of the companies that are being really innovative in the most positive way and are thinking about sustainability mm-hmm. as a business opportunity rather than a competitive cost. So keep up with the good work with that stuff. <laughs> Thank you. And final question, which um, is pretty much the same every week, but I think it's really useful and gives us an insight into the, the people I speak to and that sort of thing. And that's a book recommendation. Do you have anything that really shook your perspective or that's just really interesting? When I'm reading, I tend to read outside of my professional focus. It's kind of, I just like to go and relax when I read elsewhere. So, but a book that I did read when I was doing my, my master's thesis actually many years ago, uh, which was around sustainability auditing and um, it's called Trust and it's written by a guy called Francis Fukuyama who you may have heard of who's a sort of a well-known US academic and this book Trust is all about social capital really and the importance of relationships and trust ultimately in societies and how central it is in building a sense of a shared agenda for communities you know at a local level but also at a, at a national level and particularly at the moment I, mean, I read this book 20 years ago for my academic work but you know just at the moment I went back and reread it and it you know it has a lot to say I think about where we are today where we are seeing a fracturing of social capital and of trust within communities and, and within nations and obviously we feel this particularly in the UK with Brexit is just a reminder of how important social capital is in what we do professionally, but also just more generally how important trust and relationships are for happy, fulfilling lives. Yeah, I think that issue of trust is really clear. You know, in Australia, we've just had the the Royal Commission into the banks and that's shown that we've had these companies for a decade reporting billion dollar profits, but then Mm. we now find out that we couldn't trust them, that it wasn't it wasn't even an issue of, you know, is it following the spirit of the law or the letter of the law? It was, it was well beyond that. So trust is huge. And, you know, that's just a philosophical issue I always grapple with when thinking about impact investing, even just sustainability in terms of if there are these companies that, you know, your company wouldn't even dream of investing in, you know, terrible sort of environmental credentials and all of these sorts of things like, but it's still legal. Is it an issue of, of they're just, you know, skirting the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law? And it seems that the chasm is growing bigger. I mean, how do you see that, that sort of divide? <laughs> <laughs> this is a slightly lazy answer, but, I, you know, I think there is something important about um, 
the philosophy that a management team has. There's a great business called Arm in the UK, which is now owned by SoftBank, actually. And um, rather technical thing, they design semiconductor chips. They don't actually make the semiconductor chips themselves, but they, they sell the designs. And their big thing is around very efficient, very energy efficient chip designs. And so that's why we, we invested in them. They were basically dominating that market. And uh, they were in a position really to charge whatever they wanted because there was no one else really doing anything like what they were doing. They chose not to. They chose to charge a much lower price. And the reason they did that was because they knew if they charged a very high price, then while they might make a lot of money in the short term, in the long term, it would just uh, incentivize their customers to go ahead and invest in their own capacity to do this. And then within three or four years, probably they'd start to see other competitors emerge to take their market share. So they very cleverly... I think, price their product much lower than they could have done. It's that sort of long-term perspective that actually, if you're going to be a successful business over the long term, you need to look after the stakeholders that support your business. You need to look after the employees, the suppliers, your customers, because if any of them are really suffering as a consequence of your behavior, you don't really have a long-term sustainable business. The reason I think it's a slightly lazy answer is because obviously we do need to have regulators who come in and prevent really poor practice, even if it's only going to happen for a short period of time. But in the long run, as an investor, if you're investing in a business that is somehow ripping off part of its value chain, then over the long term, that's going to damage that business. And it's probably not a very good investment. High level philosophical answer, but there is, I think there's something important there about as an investor, understanding that, that ecosystem, that value chain and, uh, if you're long-term, you need to be more aware of that, perhaps, than investors who are just out to make a quick buck in the short-term. That's right. I think the short-termism really is the scourge of the public markets at the moment. And, um, yeah, you guys have gone the other direction. So, good to see. And just I thought maybe you would want to give us a tip of, of what is on your side table then, maybe just to summer fiction read. I'm reading um, a book by Robert Harris. I think they're brilliant. He's written a, a, a trilogy on Cicero, uh, the Roman statesman, which sounds incredibly heavy, <laughs> but um, it's a fantastic read. And uh, it's all really about the politics in the Senate in Rome uh, between him and ultimately with him and Julius Caesar. And it's fascinating. He does a lot of very thorough research. So, you know, you are learning a bit of history, but it's a ripping story as well. I would really recommend if people haven't read it already, then um, that's I've really enjoyed the, those three books. Oh, good stuff. Yeah, I'm always keen for a good tip. So I'll uh, keep an eye out for that one. My pile is growing bigger and bigger every week. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I better let you go, Seb. That's been some really great insights. Uh, I'm going to start pouring over your uh, portfolio list a little bit deeper now and learn about some of these companies and uh, hope other people do too. Great. All right. Thanks for that. And let us know next time you're back in Australia. Cheers. Will do. Thanks right. a lot. Thanks, Seb. Cheers. Cheers.